Good morning, church. How is everyone? Good? Doing all right? Thanks for that song, uh, Dustin. It's one of my favorite hymns. How many of you have heard that song, Give Me Jesus, before? Some of you heard that? Good, good. I would vote for we do that one more often, but it's just one vote. Only have one vote. Happy Fourth of July weekend to you. As noted, there are many who are out and about, and there are perhaps some of you who are here with us today because you've traveled to Kerrville to be with family or to share the Fourth of July weekend. We welcome you. We are sharing together this series of sermons we're calling Shema. The Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. It comes from the commandments that were given in Deuteronomy, and uh, it's this series that we've been sharing together over the last several weeks this summer. Uh, the banners reflect the words that sort of anchor the Shema here, O Israel, love. And um, we are to banner number three today. So if you're keeping track by way of the banners that are here on the stage before us, we are on banner number three today. I'd like for us to begin this morning by sharing the reading uh, that was just shared for us, but I'd like for us all to say it together because, as you uh, might have picked up along the way, it was, in fact... As these words were handed down to the people of God, their practice, that in every time and place, in synagogues and in homes, to speak these words together, to shape their identity, the sense of who they were, of God's presence and leading in their life. And so I think it would be appropriate for us today to speak them together out loud. You'll see the words on the screen, and if you will now uh, read with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God... The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Impress them on your children. Let us pray. God, for these words, living, eternal, and true light to our path, lamp that goes before us, light our way. We pray that you would give us ears to hear. Call us with this ancient word, Shema, to hear, to attend to your presence and your voice and your leading this day. For your word, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Nothing really moves us like our children, right? Nothing moves us more than the gift of our children, that there's nothing we wouldn't do for our children. Now, some of you may be here this morning thinking, oh yeah, but you're not dealing with this rascal. <laughs> I get it. I get it. When you're about to pull your hair out and you're thinking, what in the world has gotten into this little human being? It's difficult to remember, but it's true. Nothing moves us more. There's nothing that compels us more. There's nothing we wouldn't do for our children. Our most treasured possessions, our most profound gifts are the children gifted to us. Yes? What I want you to know is that I am here today by the grace of God. Anyone else? 
I'm here today by the grace of God, but I'm also here today by the determination of my father and my mother that I would grow up in the house of the Lord. Their determination, they're not here today, they're often with us, they're probably watching online, they're recovering from COVID on the other side of it. But what I want to tell you is that I'm here today by the grace of God and the determination of my mother and my father that I would grow up in the house of the Lord. It wasn't always the case for them. I'll tell you a little bit of my father's story as best I understand it. He was raised in the backwoods of Louisiana. So if you don't know the backwoods of Louisiana, you can imagine that however you want to imagine that. Turkey Creek, imagine that. And he grew up in a family, he was the oldest of his siblings, and they had a hard life growing up. They didn't have much. They were rural, poor, backwoods, Louisiana. And my grandfather uh, couldn't seem to hold a job much. And they moved around from place to place, a little town to place to place to place. And at a very young age, my grandfather left the family. And my dad, the oldest, as I, best I understand it, had to grow up way too fast and provide. And, and so when my mom and dad married, I think, and they were expecting their firstborn, this guy, they determined that they would chart a different course. By the grace of God, they were embraced by some neighbor friends they came to know Jesus and to love the church. And as an infant, I was raised from my earliest days in the house. We were there for everything. Anybody else? This was back in the day when there was Sunday morning Bible class, and then there was Sunday morning worship, and then there might be something after that, and then there was Sunday evening service, and then there was Wednesday service, and we were there for everything that took place. We participated, my dad uh, participated in the bus ministry. And we had a, at the church I grew up in, we had a fleet of buses. We didn't just have one, we had like, there were like six of them out there parked. And, and uh, my dad was a bus captain. And I would go with my dad on the bus, so cool, go with my dad on the bus. And we'd drive around into neighborhoods and parts of the city and we would pick kids up and I would go to the door and knock on the door. Are there any kids here who want to go to Sunday school? And I grew up in the house of the Lord, my life, my own faith. Um, this scripture, the Shema, really has everything to do with what it means to stand at the intersection of our faith and our children. To stand at the intersection of our faith and our children. And I just wanted to share a little bit of my own story. My mom and dad raised me in that intersection. I mean, I didn't play in the intersection. It's not literal, it's figurative, right? But they raised me in that intersection of faith and their children in the house of the Lord. 
When my own children were born, I, sh- I think I shared this last week. I've probably shared it more than once in, over the course of this last year. There is something profound about your own experience of becoming a parent, a father, or a mother. And I like to describe it this way. There are places in experiences in life that um, in the history of the Christian tradition, some have written are the thin places. Have you heard that phrase before, the thin places? Some of you, no? The thin places they mean by that are their experiences when it seems that this is the language they use, the veil between heaven and earth gets thin, right? Transcendent moments uh, that are beyond the ordinary. They may occur in the ordinary, but there's some sort of transcendent moment. The veil between heaven and earth gets thin. And, And I would suggest to you that for me, perhaps for you, for many of us, the moment when Um, A child is brought into your life and into the world, opens that space where the veil between heaven and earth becomes very, very thin. I shared that story before about uh, the couple who had a little boy named Sashi. You remember this story? No? You want me to tell it again? Okay, I will. Um, And they were expecting uh, another little one and they were telling them, and Sashi kept asking, when the baby comes, can, um, can I hold the baby? No. Uh, yeah. I, so. When the baby comes, can I kiss the baby? Yes, 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 that's fine. When the baby comes, can I be alone with the baby? And they thought, no, that's a little weird. And so when the baby finally came, oh, uh, Sashi, so excited and wanted to hold the baby, they let it hold the baby, and they sat there with him, hold his head, make sure it's okay, you know. And then um, Sashi kept saying, I want to be alone with the baby. I want to be alone with the baby. And so they thought, okay, how do we do this? So they took the baby into Sashi's room, and they kind of set the baby there on the floor with some, you know, make sure everything's going to be okay. Baby's not going to roll off the bed or anything like that. And they said, and Sashi was like, Okay. <laughs> so they stepped back and back at the door, and they kind of pushed the door to, but, you know, they didn't leave. They were right there. The door was cracked. They could see what was going on, just kind of, you know, their parents, right? And Sashi leaned over and said, Baby, can you tell me what heaven's like? I'm already beginning to forget. I'm telling you, the gift of a child into the world is a thin place where the veil between heaven and earth is thin. And we have a sense of God's goodness and grace in ways that you cannot have any other way. It was my experience, and perhaps it was yours as well. When my daughters were still young and I was watching them grow, there were moments like this. Not just when they were born, but when I was watching them grow. There were moments like this. Now, there were lots of other moments, asked my wife, when we thought, what sort of demon-possessed child is this? But there were other moments that were transcendent and holy. 
You can't always predict them, and you certainly can't conjure them up, but you know them when they happen. And on one of those occasions, I was so struck that I penned these words. I'll share them with you. Life is filled with simpler pleasures than those that occupy our minds and tease our souls into a restlessness. I have known such restlessness. Once my constant companion, now only an occasional visitor whose presence reminds me to lean back hard on those ordinary gifts that grace my days. I search for words, language to express that which fills me, the deepest part of me, to full measure. It is you, O God, who have seen fit to grant to me for this fading stretch of time the love of these. Claire Ansley, whose keen creative mind draws me into the realm of a possibility that stirs me to the finest sense of pride. Emily Caroline, whose laughter marks my days with a carefree wonder, whose joyful spirit will always be the smile upon my heart. You are my daughters, and I could not love you more. Thin moments, holy moments, transcendent moments, mediated to us in God's good grace through children. My children were raised in the house of the Lord. Their father was a preacher. It comes with the territory, right? They were there for most everything, for toddler Bible class, and usually the first ones there. I remember Claire, one Sunday morning, our oldest daughter, we were there early. She went on back to her toddler Bible class, and a stray neighborhood dog had gotten into the church building, and the dog ran through the foyer and down the hall and straight into her toddler class to Claire and pounced on her. Go figure. Sometimes when you're raised in the house of the Lord, you get mauled by a dog and it makes an impression. <laughs> uh, I remember Emily came home one day and um, she said, um, I'm going to sing for you the song that I learned at Bible school. And so she started to sing this little song. And I don't remember all of it, but part of it went, it was David took him slingshot. That's the way she said it. David took him slingshot and hit him on his spuzzy spot. <laughs> I don't know what that is or really that came from. But she had learned the story of David and Goliath. She knew it. Because in the house of the Lord, you learn the stories for the people that inhabit the house of the Lord. It's what happens for children. When they were little, my children were around church so much that they ran around the place barefoot, as if it were their own home. And they left their mark. 
<laughs> I walked into the office one day and I looked over on the wall. It was a it was brick wall on in the office and there were the letters with black sharpie on the wall. It said the letters were D O G and I said, dog. And uh, I said, how did that get there? And uh, I think Claire did it. And so I asked Claire, because she was up there running around because she was always up there. I asked her, what did you write on the wall? And she said, God. <laughs> She's got the letters backwards. <laughs> they, um, they left their mark. But here's the thing. In the house... Something was being written on them as well, right? Something was being written on them. We remember the stories like the one about Hannah. Hannah, who longed for a child and prayed for a child. For Samuel, one says, um, in, in bitterness, she prayed and wept. And when God granted her and her husband Eli a son, the boy they named Samuel. They brought him at the appropriate time to the house of the Lord. And here are the words. So that he might grow up in the house of the Lord. And because Samuel grew up, dedicated, given over to the house of the Lord to dwell there, it was Samuel who heard there in the house of the Lord the voice of the Lord. The calling of the Lord. Remember? Um, he wasn't sure what it was. And so he was instructed, go lay back down. And when you hear the voice again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I'm telling you, something had been written on Samuel's heart in the house of the Lord, which allowed him to encounter and hear the voice of the Lord, the calling of the Lord. Samuel grew up in the house of the Lord. The Shema, what the people of God say over and over again in synagogues and homes, exists at the intersection of our faith and our children. Here, it says, here. The Lord, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with your everything, your heart, your soul, your strength, your everything, and then teach these things to your children. The, the, the actual word for teach is translated different ways in different places. Some translations say impress them on your children, teach them on your children. Teach, the word teach for us tends to imply the transfer of knowledge. I'm going to teach you something, some new bit of knowledge that you did not have before, and now you will have it. And certainly something like that is going on in this Hebrew word. Teach them these things. But the word in Hebrew for teach can also be translated wet. Now, I don't know if you'll see this on the screen or not. It looks like something is going on up there. But the word wet, W-H. E-T, not wet like water, wet, but the other wet. You know that word? How many of you know that word, wet, right? 
So wet has the sense of um, sharpening something by rubbing on or with something, a, a wetting stone, something like that, right? Some of you recognize that. Or I think of the phrase, you know the phrase, wet your appetite? Let me wet your appetite? In other words, let me sharpen your desire for food. <laughs> a little taste, a little taste will wet your appetite. Uh, perhaps the smell in the atmosphere will wet your appetite. Perhaps a picture as you scroll through Instagram <laughs> or a video will wet your appetite. That's the sense of this third banner this part of the Shema with the command to teach these things, these commandments to your children. Teach them. Well, transfer of knowledge. Yes, there's some of that. But more than that, impress something or sharpen the desire. I like that. To sharpen the desire for something. How do you whet your appetite? You give a little taste. You create the conditions that begin to stir uh, the rumblings in your stomach, right? Uh, and if you are hungry enough, your stomach will not only rumble, you'll get this kind of hunger. Sometimes we call them hunger, what? Pains. It's this intrinsic longing, this intrinsic desire. Create the conditions. Show a little and a little more and a little more to sharpen the desire. I like that sense. That's what we're doing. It's so much more than simply transfer some knowledge, right? Um, it's more than to instruct. It's to sharpen one's desire. I want to suggest to you this morning that we need a new imagination for the children given to us. I'm going to talk about this again next week. We'll do another teach, and then the last one will be talk. I want to talk about this more next week, but for today, I want to call out that um, uh, you may or may not be aware of the origins of the Sunday school. <laughs> the Sunday school was, really began in England about 1780. It was a result of the Industrial Revolution uh, in England, and which um, created the conditions by which children went to work in uh, factories. Did you know this? Yeah, for some time, children worked, and they worked, um, uh, particularly poor children, worked long hours, and they worked six days a week, Monday through Saturday. Sunday was the only day that uh, children did not work, Poor people in factories did not work. And so they were not in school. So the origins of the Sunday school um, began with churches that saw this as an opportunity on the one day that children did not, to have them come before worship to provide them some kind of education so that they would not be illiterate, to teach them to read by reading, guess what? Bible stories. That's the origin of the Sunday school, it grows out of a particular historical moment, a particular place in time 
that though the conditions and the limits on child labor shifted over time, the Sunday school remained, right? And most of what happened in the Sunday school was shaped by what was happening in education generally as education unfolded in the um, image or in the form of the Industrial Revolution, which emphasized manufacturing. The problem with me preaching the sermon is now I'm going to give you a little thing on uh, educational theory. Sorry. (laughs) But the idea was that much like in an assembly plant, you take a child and you put them on the assembly line at age, what, five, six? And they move through the assembly line, and at the end, what comes out is the product you desire. And at every stage, you're kind of like, I'm going to use a a metaphor here, but um, at every stage, you're kind of bolting on the next thing. And then they move down the assembly line, and someone else is bolting on the next thing. And then you're building on that to bolt on the next thing. This is the paradigm for education that has persisted through much of the modern period and even persists today. We expect that every child gets on here, should know these things to move to the next place on the assembly line and know this. Now, those of you who are educators recognize that it does not work this way. Am I right? It does not actually work that way. And I would suggest to you that we need um, something in our own sense of what it means to teach children these things, which is what the Shema says. Teach these commandments, these things to your children. We need an imagination that is far more robust than Sunday school forged in the image of the Industrial Revolution. I want our children to know some things too. But perhaps we might discover by God's leading and God's spirit a way that moves more towards this notion of impressing on their hearts something by creating the conditions in a really robust ecology of spiritual formation that leads them to a desire, an appetite for, to sharpen one's desire for God's presence and God's voice and God's leading. Merely transferring information in a more detailed way from one stage to the next stage to a next stage may or may not sharpen appetite. It is certainly a tool to sharpen the appetite and the desire. I'm talking about that the end of what we offer our children is to cultivate in them a desire for God's presence, God's voice, and God's leading to discern in every season of life that we know comes to all of us. We do not know when or where it turns and how it plays out, but our life, un, life, our lives unfold in seasons and in mountaintops and in valleys and in every confusing turn along the way. We want to cultivate, to impress in them a desire, an appetite 
for God's presence and God's leading in every moment. And so we invite them to dwell with us in the house of the Lord, not just so they can get the information, but so that their hearts can be impressed with these desires to seek God, to know God. And maybe as we're funding that kind of imagination for what it means to teach our children, to impress upon our children, we'll remember stories like this one. This is Elijah. And Elijah um, was led by God up on top of the mountain um, so that Elijah might hear God's voice and God's leading. While Elijah was on the mountain, um, there was a mighty wind. And uh, the wind was fierce. And it ripped trees out of, ground, out of the ground. Um, and it blew things over. It was a mighty wind. Um, like the one that knocked that big Spanish oak over behind my garage <laughs> last week. It was a mighty wind on the mountain. But God was not in the wind. And then there was an earthquake. I mean, literally the ground beneath his feet on that mountain began to shake and quake and the earth opened up and all of that, the tremors, you can't unmistakably, that's a moment. If the wind wasn't it, maybe it's the earthquake. That's a moment. But God was not in the earthquake. And then there was a fire. Uh, we know what that is, right? We're praying for relief and for rain because the fires are terrible and destructive and ominous. And that smoke will get your attention. Yes? And a fire came. And God was not in the fire. And then it says that there was a still, small voice. And God was in the whisper. In the whisper. Teach your children these things. Impress on them the way, so that they might know a desire, an appetite for God, so that they might know God's presence and they might know God's leading. They might hear God's voice in the whisper. And I like to imagine that the little story I like to tell about Sashi all the time it's not just a cute story. It's, um, I read it first in Clint, Ken Blanchard's uh, book. Um, I think it's called The Blessing. I think, or the book, no, The Beloved. Um, but that maybe in the innocence of that child, the question was a real question. And that maybe... God's voice comes to shape and impress the hearts of our children in whispers. I think of it like this. 
that when we are young, and even sometimes when we are old, but we're still young, we need God's voice to speak into us that which we cannot see about ourselves. You are my beloved. And that even when Jesus, in obedience, waded out into the waters of the Jordan and was plunged beneath the surface and the heavens opened up because the veil between heaven and earth can be thin. And the voice of God spoke over Jesus for all those who were there. I want to imagine, it doesn't say, that it was in the hushed tones of a whisper. You are, this is, my beloved child. For all the things that you ever wanted to say to your children, don't tell me what they are. (laughs) For all that you wrestled with as you wrestled with them, for all that we might say to children, whether they're our own or the ones gifted to this body. Hear this. We impress the love of God upon their hearts in the whisper that says, you are God's beloved child. No matter what, you are God's beloved. And for all the doubt that you will have about yourself and who you are and what it means as you navigate through a world of ups and downs and twists and turns, and it will never be any more up and down and twisty-turny than I imagine it right now. We are leaning over. God is leaning over through us to say to them, look, no matter what, everything else that's going on in this crazy world, you are God's beloved And nothing can separate you from the love of God. If you tell your children nothing else, and I suspect you will tell them plenty, speak into them that which they cannot yet see about themselves. You are beautiful. You are kind. You are loved. Look, here we stand this morning. We've All these weeks, hearing the Shema at the intersection of our faith and our children impress these things upon their hearts that their appetite might be for the God who loves them and has called them His beloved. Thanks be to God.